shredding the walls of sanity and reason like full auto balter fire through plasteel. We are the unrelenting sound of rebellion. 665.66UHMR Chemrat Radio. Broadcasting tonight from the balcony of Mama Kaz's Noodle House. You know, Gobo, this Liz Gizzard ramen might be my favorite, but it tears through <laughs> my guts like a forearmed emperor through rice paper walls. Speaking of forearmed emperors, Seems like someone stirred them up this week. New sightings are being reported all over the underhave. Looks like it might be bounty time again, boys. I'm going to give me an ear or three. Your guiding light in the underhive. I have to admit, though, it's mostly probably just unstable plasma. I'm Goblin King, joined today by my co-host, the maniacal midnight mauler of Maniac Alley, Marky. What it is, hoes. And newly on the hunt for four-armed rat ears, it's the polar bear of the Frost Hollow himself, Chuckerfly. Those those ears go down tasty with a little bit of extra powder on them. <laughs> it's always worth What kind of powder, powder Chuck? <laughs> I mean... You know, it can be green powder. Sometimes it's white. Depends on how much money you got. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we had this debate earlier. Is it, it warp stones green? So yeah, is the good warp powder powder green, or is the good uh, warp powder white? I mean, I mean, when they're when they're cu- cutting it with baby powder and battery acid, it probably turns white. <laughs> That's how the underhive cuts it: baby powder and battery acid. <laughs> oh man. Welcome to Under the Eye of Madness, episode 89, Horus Heresy, part 4, the drop site massacre of Istvan 5. As we get deeper into the heresy, keep in mind that while we mostly already know where the lines fall, which forces are traitors and which are loyalists, during the events, not even the Emperor and Malkador, two figures said to have significant foresight, had seen the full picture. Even the Aldari Farseers, who had glimpsed some of the truth to mankind's slide towards this end, knew the vague steps it would take, but not every single detail. As we cover each new small treachery in the string, the only figures who know the depth of their heresy and the drive it will take towards Terra are the traitor Primarchs and some of their top Astartes commanders, very specifically Erebus and Corferon. But you might be wondering... What makes the Istvan system so crucial to the opening of the heresy? Essentially, it's a mix of strategic importance and blind, dumb luck. Horus needed a high value, something both far enough away from the core worlds, but valuable enough not to be ignored target. And the Istvan system fit that mold perfectly, being seated at a confluence of several known stable warp routes, while also being far enough away from the core worlds in the Segmentum Obscurus that it was a plausible seat of power for a splinter or rival empire. Basically, the Istavan system was the great lure, a piece on the regicide board that Horus could use to manipulate the first few engagements of his civil war, making those battles some of the most significant to the modern Imperium, even in the true extent that their histories may have passed into legend and myth. Yeah, because when you, when you think about it, it's finally Astartes on Astartes fighting. Pretty, uh, yeah, that's 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 pretty brutal. And like, uh, I know we'll cover it later, but there's an actual reason why there's red helmets covered in the heresy because of a specific sergeant. Uh, he was training his troops to fight Astartes because Astartes had never been beaten by anything else. Huh. And the and the whole reason that the World Eater's armor is red is essentially because of that 
that battle in the Istvan three atrocity where they just slaughtered everything and their blue and white armor was just covered in gore. Do not pity those who are lost on the path. Pity those who reach its end and see at last what they are seeking. Malkador the Sigilite. You know what? That was, I'm, I am audibly clapping. Like, that was really I, good. I like it. That was good. That was Margie, really Margie's good. now Can, Maldacor. Yep. Nah, I ain't doing that voice ever again. <laughs> <laughs> you only get one. Istavan Three would remain a charred and ash wasteland for a millennia, a dead graveyard world of shattered hive cities. Yet the ancient Rylanor, a loyalist, venerable dreadnought of the Emperor's children, had managed to survive in a hangar, lost, thought dead, and left as the single survivor of the world, or so he thought. The hangar he had taken refuge in contained a single undetonated virus bomb, and driven mad by centuries of isolation, he used some of the salvaged sonic weapons of the traitor emperor's children to eventually fashion a beacon, a beacon which caught the attention of the Thousand Sons and the then demon primarch Fulgrim. As Fulgrim tore Rylanar's remaining organic body from his cybernetic sarcophagus, the ancient detonated the virus bomb. Once more, all life on Instavan Three burned, the traitors on the world and what little life had returned. All but Fulgrim, who eventually emerged from the crumbling underhive of Coral City, his body held together by a web of demonic energy. But this was a thousand years after the heresy. Thanks to the actions of Nathaniel Garrow on the Eisenstein, the Emperor was forewarned of the coming treachery. While the actions of Captain Saul Tarzit had managed to save the lives of a hundred thousand marines, which had led a guerrilla war that greatly staggered the Warmaster's plans. Even if those loyalists never made it off the world, their heroism had been proven. Some twisted fate, or perhaps the will of the Emperor himself, allowed Graviel Loken to survive the second bombardment and he eventually dug himself out from the rubble of the world. His mind, however, was broken and his memory and identity completely lost. He named himself Cerberus, after the hound that guarded the gates of Hades in ancient Terran mythology. He believed death had rejected him, and that he was the only loyalist left on the world. He became the monster of Istavan III, and for over a Terran year, hunted down and slaughtered any survivors he found. So it's, it's kind of interesting, because even in all that devastation that we talked about last time, Rylanor survived. He survived basically buried under the rebel of the Preceptor's palace, dug himself out enough to find a hangar and a virus bomb. And then, you know, a thousand years later, a couple thousand years later, so sometime in like M34, M35, we'll, we'll get to it in more detail at some point when we cover Fulgrim, lured Fulgrim back to Istavan three to kill him. And it didn't work. But that was the second and like final death of Istavan three. Istavan three is kind that, of talked about as a was planet. That, now. Uh, that, that was, I do going that all you got. I ain't done yet. I ain't hear no bell. I didn't hear no bell. And That's like, weird, cause like luring him back to Istavan three, he's just like, uh, I ain't going back there, man. This place is horrid. <laughs> Virus bomb, like two, three times. He's uh, fire fucking storms all over the place. I'm sure the the atmosphere's completely fucked now. Like, oh, yeah. well, yeah, yeah. And like you know, Rylanor would have been a prize for Fulgrim. It, it, you know, one of his lost sons, one of his ancient warriors. 
bringing him into the fold of the emperor's children as a traitor would have been like a big get. And then to have this dude detonate a bomb in your face to try to kill you. Like Take Fulgrim, whatever was left of Fulgrim's soul, like died. Even if Fulgrim survived, even if whatever Fulgrim is now made it through that event, Fulgrim's like psyche, whatever was left of Fulgrim's soul, the original Fulgrim was destroyed by that action. Like you're, just, you're wonder, not coming back from that. I wonder was was that dreadnought a uh, Terranborn? Yeah, yeah, Rylanor the Ancient yep. was a Terranborn. He was a there you go. He was a loyalist. There you go. That's the reason Badass. he did it. Good. He thought, and he thought he was the only one. And like, and like, that's that's a a consistent through line with any of the survivors of the Istvan Three atrocity. They all think they're the last until Loken starts to find them. So like, these guys think they're the last, and they kind of start to gather, and then Loken finds you, or Cerberus finds you, and just fucking slaughters you. Because at that point, Cerberus sees everything alive on the planet as a traitor. He no longer, he know, he has enough memory to know what happened, but he doesn't know who he is or what role he played or the fact that there were good guys and bad guys. He just knows anybody who looks like an Astartes other than him is a bad guy. Damn. Yeah. You know, just imagine Loken like tracking you down. <laughs> I imagine, no, no I thanks. imagine with the fact <laughs> that they like talk about him being a monster during this time, he's probably like, I'm behind you. And then you turn around and he's not there. <laughs> <laughs> just like a, like a fucked up horror movie he just screws with you for an hour before murdering you he's batman but from a horror this movie this is the guy that refused to die right yeah graviel loken is the loyalist luna wolves that abaddon defeated and left for dead but abaddon didn't kill him he just yeah, wounded him and left him yep. to die he he's the one abaddon couldn't kill horus couldn't kill he was basically when he's on the council he was kind of like the uh the moral person he was on the like council. a moral compass yeah he was like hey whoa this is like what we're here for boys and every single time one of these characters gets a chance to kill him like abaddon had him had him dead to rights abaddon was like you're not worthy of my blade i'm gonna let you burn with the world and then leaves and it's called it's called plot armor yeah, it's totally it's, it's when James Bond and the villain are fighting each other on the top of the train and the and James Bond dives down and the villain turns around and gets hit by the tunnel. Every yeah. single time the villain makes the stupid mistake or the stupid choice with Loken. I imagine they're like, We only want him on the you know, in the group because we need a devil's advocate, right? Like we need to make sure it's not an echo chamber, so we gotta have that one guy that has principles and when morals. He would- yeah, and that's that's actually what happened when Are he was you doing brought... finger quotes right now, Marky. <laughs> when he was brought on the Mornaval, when Loken was brought into the Mornaval, he was brought in to be the the concept of the thirteenth man. He was brought on because Horus knew this. This was before Horus was chaos tainted and had gone down the heretical path. This is still when Horus was a good guy in air quotes. Horus knew. <laughs> that Loken would always argue for what Loken thought was moral and right. He, he wouldn't just blindly follow the Primarch. And Horus respected that. Horus wanted that voice on his council. He wanted somebody that would go, hey, maybe this isn't the best idea. He knew, you know, uh, uh, Horus knew that Abaddon was bloodthirsty and would always give the bloodthirsty answer. He knew that Horus Aksamon, little Horus, was essentially kind of just a yes man and would either follow what Abaddon or Horus said. These are two of the advisors. 
and he knew that Tortagon would go along with everybody else, but wouldn't like it. So he he specifically sought out Loken so somebody would like be that extra voice, that voice of reason or whatever you would say, um, to to have essentially a better counsel. That was the whole reason that Loken was originally brought on. But what ended up was that, as Chuck said, Loken ended up being the only voice of reason at a certain point. Because um, Tortagon at some point gets kicked off the Mornaval and somebody else replaces him. Some hmm. dude who turns into a demon. <laughs> We'll get there. We'll cover the Mornaval uh, in a lot yes more detail men. when we talk about Horus. When you, turn, when you turn to chaos, you need more yesmen. Yeah, exactly. Nathaniel Garo eventually found Loken, having returned to Istvan Three in hopes of his continued survival, and with orders to recruit Loken into Malkador the Sigilite's fledgling proto-inquisition. Garo encountered only a scattered handful of survivors, all of who spoke of a beast that hunted them. Garo tracked these rumors down to Loken and found his lair, discovering the long-dead corpse of Tarek Torgadon before he was attacked by the mad and almost feral Cerberus. The two fought a long battle with Cerberus managing to eventually escape, at which point Garo and his companions came into conflict with the undead demon hosts of Nurgle that the virus bombing had created. Basically, the planet had made a bunch of zombies. Garo's forces and Cerberus became allied for a brief time, hunting down and killing these foul creatures. But once that was done, Garo and Cerberus once again fought in mortal combat. During the second fight, Garo, however, was able to break through Loken's fractured mind and amnesia, reminding the captain of who he had once been, letting Loken know that the Emperor had many uses for him in rooting out the corruption that was staining and spreading across the Imperium. Once Gavril Loken had been brought back to himself, he joined Garo's warriors, and they all returned to Luna, ready to accept their first mission from Malkador the Sigilite. As a bit of a sneak peek, our next episode, or not, not our next episode, but one of our upcoming episodes, probably within the next two or three, is going to be a focus, Heroes of 40k, on Malkador, because I feel like we, we need to provide a bunch of context for who Malkador is. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. But yeah, like the group Garo has, if I remember right, it's like kind of a badass group because it's like a Stardis from the Traitor Legions that weren't Traitor. Yeah, they're still loyalist, and they all essentially become the Grey foundation Knights. of the Grey, the Grey Knights, Knights, the Inquisition, and the Death Watch. Even though those names won't be used for a couple of hundred years to a couple of cent uh, to a couple of thousand to, to almost a thousand years after they're essentially the founders of what those orders become yeah uh, and i if i remember right reading some of it some of the books with those guys it's like like one of them is a world eater yep and i think he has the nails but he's like he can control his rage just enough i also think it's the big fucking world eater the big guy that they think is they think was once a thunder warrior that might be is he might he might have been one of the ones i can't locked remember up if too. he died or not yeah yeah i can't remember yeah. if he's one of the ones that were locked up or not that they let out and they yeah yeah there's some there's a lot of that the heresy's got a lot of crazy like i guess points of foundation or points of origin for a bunch of 40k stuff it was a crazy shit start happening again the crazy death shit yeah soon <laughs> when is soon uh within the next five minutes mark you don't don't you worry 
Maybe if you, you want, say now. If now. you want, you can fast forward it, but it's now, but not now. Now it was then, but soon. <laughs> Allegiances and a galaxy divided. Horus had begun the groundwork of gathering his allies and forces to his rebellion almost as soon as he had walked out of the Serpent Lodge on Davin. The Primarchs Angron of the World Eaters, Mortarion of the Death Guard, had joined with Horus due to their own personal grudges against the Emperor. Fulgrim of the Emperor's children had been lured to the side of the Chaos Gods mostly by Slanish's promises of power and personal perfection. And Logar of the Wordbearers had been responsible for Horus's corruption, having worked alongside the ruinous powers for at least the last 40 years of the Great Crusade. The three most loyal legions, the Dark Angels, Blood Angels, and Ultramarines, had never been considered as potential allies, even though Horus had desperately wanted circumstances in which Sanguinius, his best friend and brother, would have sided with him. So Horus made sure that to send each of these legions and their primarchs off to distant battlefields. Dorne of the Imperial Fists and Jakatai Khan of the White Scars had been too close to Terra for Horus to even risk contacting, although Horus falsely believed that Khan would eventually side with him. Fulgrim, using the same lure of promised secret knowledge and dark tech Horus had used on the newly forming Dark Mechanicus, attempted to recruit Primarch Ferris Manus of the Iron Hands. Since the Iron Hands had worked so closely with the Mechanicus and were closely allied with them in both temperament and philosophy, Ferris was also Fulgrim's best friend, like best brother, best friend at this point. This attempt failed and Fulgrim barely escaped with his life. Angered by this rebuttal, Fulgrim promised Horus Ferris's head on a silver platter. While the Dark Angels and Blood Angels had been sent to the demon-infested Cygnus Cluster, the Ultramarines had been sent to Kalf, where the Wordbearers Legion under First Captain Carferon waited to ambush Reboot Gilliman and his sons, as both legions were closely matched in size. Conrad Kurz, the Night Haunter and the Primarch of the Night Lords, was due to face disciplinary action at the hands of the Emperor, while the Primarch Alpharius of the Alphen Legion had always been closer to Horus than he had been to the Emperor, although it seems like Omegon, Alpharius's twins, loyalty to Chaos was actually a mistake. Omegon thought he was serving, or potentially thought he was serving, the Emperor and ended up in Chaos. Untangling the Alpha Legion will be its own series, so just, just wait, guys, it's coming. Perturabo, Primarch of the Iron Warriors, had a deep rivalry with Rogel Dorn and had believed that he and his sons had always been given the short end of the stick, never receiving any of the glory they deserved, making each easy targets for corruption. As the Iron Warriors deserve. <laughs> As all of them deserve. <laughs> oh, oh, you're, you're saying out of the ones that are going to turn traitor, the Iron Warriors deserve the shaft the most? Yes. What an Imperial Fists player. What an Imperial Fists thing to say, yep. What an Imperial Fisty thing to say. I feel like we should have, like, uh, kind of like we did with the Orcs, where we talked about, like, the different, uh, not not tribes, what the hell are they called? The, difference, the different clans, the different legions. Yeah, we should have, we should have a spotlight on legions. We yeah like we're gonna do thirty k forty k like what were they doing in thirty k and then forty k and what they are what they were what they changed into yep so uh, we'll how cover badly they got booked we'll cover all the primarchs at some point probably after we're done with the the Horus Heresy and then we will cover the chapters the lead the original legions and the chapters that came from them so yeah. we'll talk about the at least the big ones. 
Uh, and then as we kind of move forward out of, you know, because at a certain point we'll have covered a lot of factions or, or yeah, we'll have covered a lot more factions than we've covered history. And we'll start yeah. diving into some of the like battles and stuff because like, you know, the, uh, for instance, you know, as we're talking about these battles, we're talking about legions that exist. But in events like the Badab War, there were legion, not legions, there were chapters that were raised and created for that war. So we'll talk about some of the more obscure ones. We'll talk about all of the big book ones, and we'll talk about all of the like big successors when we cover the the Space Marine legions. But yeah, yeah. it's it's it coming. sucks because it's like a double edged sword, right? You cover the lore, and it talks about the legions, and if you don't know much <laughs> about the legions. And we talk about the legions first, and you start going into lore. It's like, yeah, okay, well, we'll go into Ishwan three more after. <laughs> exactly. like, it it, it kind of sucks because it's like, all right, well, what do we do? You know, it's like a chicken or the egg kind of thing. It's and I a feel weird, like, weird balance. <laughs> yeah, because then you start talking about specific uh, heroes and big baddies, and then you're like, well, who the fuck is this guy? He's a word bearer. Well, what makes the word bearers so badass, right? And it's like, yeah, and and vice versa, right? Like, oh, they're they're gonna. They're going to uh, ambush Gilliman, and it's like, oh, who the fuck is Gilliman? Not maybe, you know, for some people that don't know, it's like, well, who the fuck is Gilliman? That's the Primarch of the Ultramarines. Well, who are the Ultramarines? Ultramarines are like the poster boys of the fucking. <laughs> like it, yeah. And then you start getting to that, and you're like, okay, well, what makes them so so badass? And it's like, oh, well, there was the Tyrannic War that blah, blah, blah. Like, And then you start going but, into it. But so. again, if you bring up what makes the so what makes the ultramarines so badass well there was the tyrannic war right but the tyrannic war happened in 41 you know in the 40th yeah, millennium 40, right, right. that happened 40k yeah. yeah yeah so it, 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 that's why we keep trying to mention like this primarch this is the primarch's legion essentially and like right now in a lot of ways, these battles, Istavan 3 and Istavan 5, are the battles, at least for the legions that are involved, are the battles that kind of mark out major things that happen with them. Right. Um, uh, and, and we'll get to the battle. That to, to your point, we will talk about the Battle of Kalf, because the Battle of Kalf actually happens between Istvan 3. Well... The Battle of Kalf kind of happens at the same time as Istvan 3. It happens right before Istvan 5. But Corferon is back on Istvan 5 for the Dropsite Massacre. So we'll go and talk about it's, the Battle of Kalf, the conflict between the Word Bearers and the Ultramarines here relatively shortly. But it's, it's kind of like, like what I mentioned earlier. We're going to cover Malkador. We have to. <laughs> yeah. And, and we cover Kalf. Uh, uh, I'll be honest. That's one of the books I read. And that that book is such a you want to so so like how marky's talking and ryan are saying it's like you don't know them as chapters later you may not know them as legions as we're talking about this but in that one a lot of people always make in in the game in general everybody makes fun of uh, the ultramarines a lot of people are like ah you're an ultramarine player blah blah, blah. i tell right, you right. what that book makes you want to be an ultramarine player yeah the Battle of Kalth and the Teneric, the tar, first Tyrannic War, are definitely places where the Ultramarines shine. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, we did talk about the Tyrannic, the first Tyrannic War, and the involvement of the Ultramarines in our Tyranid faction series. Um, but yeah, we it's definitely one of those things. Like, do we talk about 30k before we talk about the lead? Do we talk about the lead? It's that meme of the dude talking to the girl at the baseball yeah. game, yeah, <laughs> where he's like. 
All right, so there's this thing called Warhammer 40K. Okay, but to understand that, you have to know what the warp is. All right, but before I explain the warp, we've got to talk about the Emperor of Mankind. Okay, before we talk about the Emperor of Mankind. We've got to talk about Slaanesh. He yeah. fucked God into existence. <laughs> it's totally and it's Before totally we talk about meme. the hate fucking, we got to talk about the, the old ones and how they created <laughs> Exactly. So it's uh, we're, we're trying. We definitely are. Getting to all of it as Mar- Marky's doing his episode. What did you used to do? Used to be episode three sixty nine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How Gilman lost his cock. Coming, coming soon. Debt TM. What do you mean? He just had a, a he just had a half elf baby. Don't you look at memes? It's a vasectomy. <laughs> That's the vasectomy baby. <laughs> all right. So speaking of a little bit of background to all of these various legions, we're going to come back to the Thousand Sons. The Thousand Sons and their Primarch Magnus would have never joined Horus but for the path that Zinch had laid out for them. Magnus and his sons had been staunchly loyal, but their potent psychic powers and their obsession with knowledge was just the right amount of leverage needed to give that little bit of edge to chaos. The Space Marines' assault on Prospero had ultimately been the linchpin that led to their corruption, as Lehman Russ mortally wounded Magnus as the city of Tizka and its libraries burned around him and his remaining space marines. It was clear that the space wolves would slaughter them all, and so it was in this moment of desperation that Magnus gave in to the promises of Zinch, both he and the surviving Thousand Sons being transported to the demon world known as the Planet of Sorcerers, Magnus becoming a demon primarch and pretty much the first where he swore vengeance against the emperor who he felt had betrayed him. Little did Magnus know that it was actually Horus who had manipulated his downfall and corruption. The remaining Space Marine legions, the Raven Guard, Salamanders, and Space Wolves, remained staunchly loyal to the emperor. Aside from the Astartes forces, Horus had already swayed Magos Relagus of the Adaptus Mechanicus to his side with the promise of the ancient STC databases that had been recovered in the war with the Artarian technocracy, an alliance which saw the Mechanicus and the Titan legions support join the growing traitor forces. Not all the Titan legions, just some of them. While the forces of the Imperial army were often more loyal to the Astartes forces they fought alongside than some far off and hazy notion of what the Imperium or the Imperium ruler was. A lot of these Imperial army guys had never even seen the Emperor at this point. Because you got to remember, the Great Crusade was 200 years long. And all of this shit is happening in the last 50, 40, 50 years of the Crusade. All of it after Olinor. So the Emperor is no longer... The Emperor is not on the planet. He's not helping raise the Imperial Army. These are dudes who are sworn in to the creed of the Imperial Army and to follow... You know, They're sworn into the military, but they're sworn in under the watchful eyes of an Astartes commander or maybe a Primarch. That's the dude they're loyal to. When the, when the Primarch that you've been following for 15 years of battle goes, hey, we're going to go join Horus on this planet, you go, yep, cool, down dog. You don't go, but what about the Emperor? Because the Emperor is yeah. such a hazy, far-off notion. Plus, plus you got to think, too, a lot of them are coming planets that were just reclaimed. So, oh, it's yeah. in his name, why my planet's fucked up? Yeah, I'm, I'm good, bro. You want to go kill his planet? I'm down. Or if it was a planet that was taken by the word bearers or the sons of Horus after the events of Davin, they, were, they weren't even, they were taking the planets, but they weren't spreading the Imperial truth. 
As a final piece of the puzzle, Horace's new confidant and mentor in the ways of chaos, the word bearer's first chapel in Erebus, helped the war master in a ritual which allowed them to contact the chaos entities of the warp. Sarkel became their demonic emissary to the chaos gods, who once again deceived Horus masterfully, convincing him that they had no interest in controlling anything in the material realm. They just wanted the emperor gone. The emperor who was building some device that was going to destroy them and take the immaterium away from them. They would support Horus in exchange for Horus defeating this plot and the emperor. Horus agreed and swore loyalty to Chaos Undivided officially, sometime between Istvan III and the Drapsite Massacre of Istvan V. So even though Horus had agreed to work with them when he was resurrected, it was in this talk with Sarkel that he was like, nope, done, totally sworn, we're in, boys. In for a penny, in for a pound. It's kind of shitty that Magnus got forced into, do I just die or do I accept chaos as my lord and savior? All yeah. because, I mean, it, it forced his hand, right? It, I, I can see the whole, I know we bring it up often, the whole Magnus did nothing, did nothing wrong. nothing wrong, yeah. But it just like reinforces it more and more with each, like, each little new episode that we have. Him. Yeah, with each episode that we give a little more coverage on it, it just kind of sucks. So when he, does it say that when he accepted the whole Demon Primarch dealio that that's when he turned into the, the big red baddie? Yep, that was the moment. That's, that's essentially what happened. And he was the first demon Primarch. He was the first one to accept the gifts of one of the chaos gods and be reborn as a demon. Uh, oh, it's the only thing that kept him alive. Oh, all because Russ got a garbled message. Yeah. All because Horus lied to Russ. <laughs> I mean, we, we can all admit Russ, Russ is very, uh, very heavy handed, <laughs> very heavy handed with his tasks. And single-minded, but, like, I think in reality, from reading how the books are and everything, he he wouldn't have wiped them. He wouldn't have gone to blows. He would have been, like, shown up, made his message, Magnus would have left, everything would have been fine. Yeah, if he had showed up with handcuffs and been, like, well, we know that. So, so as the Space Wolves were approaching Prospero... Magnus shut down all of Prospero's defenses. He had the military step down. He hid the approach of the Space Wolves because yep. Magnus knew that he was going to get arrested. Magnus knew that he oh, fucked yeah. up. Yeah, he and knew he was ready he to accept his happen. punishment. Yep. Ready to accept it was not expecting. And then uh, he was like, "Holy shit, this is a lot more than punishment." Yeah, yeah. yeah when they, when Russ started slaughtering his people, as in the humans that lived on the planet and his sons, that's when Magnus was like. And and it wasn't even initially. Magnus let it go on for a bit, and eventually he was like, "Wait a minute! Like I can't. It's not going to stop. They're not stopping. I yeah. have to do something." And yeah, it's, in the it's way a, Magnus, yeah, in the way way I see it in my head too, as they describe it, it's like they all have these little floating familiars with them all the time. A lot of them, the Thousand Sons. Yeah. And as soon as Magnus is like, "All right, we're doing this. Fuck them up." All of a sudden, the pretty little birds and cats that ran with them turn into what you would think would look like demons. Like instantly, yeah, like even the demons. Essentially. Yep, the demons are like, all right, the costume's off. Yeah, yeah, it was very much, and it was all manipulation. And that, and and again, it on their on their side of things, the fact that they were practicing in sorcery without the right precautions, 
which again kind of goes back to the fact that the emperor was lying to them and not giving them the full story. But the fact that they were practicing in sorcery and the fact that they were gathering all of this forbidden knowledge was that like the doors propped open a little bit. So Zinch can come by and be like, hi, would you like to talk about our Lord and Savior, me? (laughs) You know, when you're in the front yard mowing and somebody comes up to solicit you and like you can't, you're like, well, fuck, I'm already in the front yard. I guess I have to talk to you. Magnus was in the front yard. The polite polite thing to do now because I can't run away is listen to you. (laughs) I can't run away, so I guess I'll talk to you about the vacuum cleaner you're selling. Like, I don't need another vacuum cleaner, but I guess I'll hear you out. The Drop Site Massacre of Istvan 5. Here you go, Marky. You wanted to know when I was going to get bloody again. Let's go. Are you ready for your Deckard? Where's your Deckard cane? Bust him out. War is a crucible in which we burn. In the fires of battle, it is the past consumed and the future born on tongues of flame. No greater fire there has been in our time than the three bloody hours of the Dropside Massacre. Malkador the Sigilite, Regent of Terra. You're now, you're now the Sigilite for now on. <laughs> for now <laughs> on. When we, when we get to the Siglets episode. <laughs> it's all about the Siglet. Is that how you're going to say? You're not going to say Sigilite. You're going to say Siglet? Yep. All right. Malkador right. the Siglet. <laughs> now Malkador the Siglet, he's just out there in front of 7-Eleven with Paul Malls, non-filtered. Just lighten up. Just sigletting. I, I was thinking, does he walk around trying to sell you cigarettes? He's like, hey, cigarette, cigarette, cigarette. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm glad somebody else has been. I got you. <laughs> no, I, I can't that popped in my mind. But I'm, I'm big He's in front of 7 Eleven smoking his Paul Malls trying to talk to you about his Lord and Savior, the God Emperor. Uh, hey, hey, boy. <laughs> you ever heard about a God Emperor? Like, Jesus, dude, do you drink whiskey and gargle gravel? Like, come on, bro. Despite Horace's best laid plans, news of the Istavan Three atrocity was brought to the Regent of Terra, Malkador the Sigilite, and the Primarch Rogel Dorn of the Imperial Fists by the Loyalists on board the Death Guard frigate Eisenstein. With the treachery exposed, the Emperor entrusted Rogel Dorn with the plan to deal with this rebellion. It was with this authority that in 006.M31, Dorn ordered the combined forces of seven Space Marine Legions to assault the position of Horus and his traitors in the Istavan system. Horus's forces were blooded, having proved their loyalty to the War Master and willingness to fight their brother Astartes, and it was a fight they were eager to continue. Horus knew the loyalist forces of the Emperor hadn't been tested in this way yet, and this was a weakness he intended to exploit. He planned a blow against the false emperor, a strike which would resonate through the millennia of the imperial histories to come. Let's take a quick step back, though, and look at what went down between Ferris Manus and Fulgrim in detail. While the bulk of the 3rd Legion and the 28th Expeditionary Fleet under the command of Edilidon met with Horus over the rebellious planet of Istavan III, Fulgrim had been ordered by the War Master to meet with Ferris Manus, his oldest and dearest friend, in hopes that he could be swayed to join the traitors. Fulgrim and a small force of the Emperor's children joined up with the Iron Hand's 52nd Expeditionary Fleet in order to help them retake the world of called Caladenus IV from the Orcs. I'm going with Caladenus IV, I don't care how it's actually pronounced. Great bonds of friendship and brotherhood 
had long existed between these two legions and their primarchs, but it would all come to a screeching halt aboard Ferris Manus's flagship, the Fist of Iron. Fulgrim had been convinced that he could bring his brother to their side, pointing out the flaws of the Emperor, and the two primarchs came to blows in Manus's inner sanctum, the Anvilarium. Ferris was determined to stop his brother's betrayal before it could even begin, attempting to use his silvery necrodermis hands to destroy Fulgrim's golden sword, Fireblade. However, there was an explosion, and it failed to destroy the weapon and knocked Manus out cold. Fulgrim, at the prompting of the Slaneshi demon that corrupted his soul, almost killed his unconscious brother with the weapon Fulgrim himself had forged for Manus, the Forge Breaker. It was a giant hammer. But he couldn't bring himself to do it, and instead he took the weapon and left the fire blade, the weapon Ferris Manus had actually made for Fulgrim. As he emerged from Ferris Manus's inner sanctum, Fulgrim gave a signal and his phoenix guard instantly beheaded all of the Iron Hand's Morlocks Terminators. The Emperor's children almost killed Iron Hand's first captain, Gabriel Santor, in their escape from the Fist of Iron. Fulgrim then took to his personal assault craft, the Firebird, ordering his own battle barge, Pride of the Emperor, and its escorts to open fire on the Iron Hand's ships of the 52nd Expeditionary Fleet. This surprise attack crippled the Iron Hand's force and allowed the Emperor's children to escape into the warp so they could meet up with the rest of their forces in the Istvan system. So it's going down. Early in their life, which we will probably cover on both sides, when we talk about Fulgrim and when we talk about Ferris Manus, they got into a contest, and the contest was who could make the better weapon. And Fulgrim made a Warhammer, and Ferris made a sword. And it was kind of one of those things where like, they were competing, but Fulgrim was like, I'm going to make my brother the best weapon. And Ferris was like, I'm going to make my brother the best weapon. So there wasn't really a, like, I'm trying to win. There was more like, I'm trying to make the best gift. And then they exchanged gifts. So Fulgrim fought with the weapon that Ferris had made him. And Ferris fought with the Warhammer that Fulgrim had made for him. And they were like prized weapons. So this entire fight and Fulgrim basically throwing the sword down and taking the hammer back is like an extra little like it's that thing that happens like the we're no longer brothers it's that declarative it's action. an extra little jive right in there yeah yep it's like yep it's mine now i don't i don't i don't need your weak ass sword i want the hammer yep fulgrim's failure enraged horus who now knew he would have to make swift preparations to meet the inevitable response of the emperor which was likely now coming on swift wings Fulgrim was tasked with taking a force of Emperor's children to the ancient alien fortress ruins of Istavan V in order to prepare the world for the final phase of Horus's Istavan operations. Horus had to soothe his brother's pride, however, which initially railed against such a menial task by explaining how it was the most important part of the plan and could not be trusted to another. So Horus, again, manipulating everybody around him. And so Fulgrim supervised the vast teams of Dark Mechanicum Earth Movers as they prepared a vast network of earthen works, trenches, bunkers, and redoubts in the black sand of Istavan 5's Urngol Plateau. Anti-aircraft batteries and orbital torpedoes were hidden amid the ancient alien walls and fortresses. If the Emperor's legions wanted to destroy the traitors, they were going to have to land in force and dig them out. Fulgrim even built a massive bastion into one of these keeps a command position worthy of the Warmaster himself. Istavan V was an ancient and mostly dead world, while some meager traces of life still clung to it. 
It was basically populated by extremely hardy desert wasteland plants and whatever animals could scratch out enough to survive. The world had suffered thousands of years of tectonic instability and volcanism, and only some of its more massive structures and some of that long-dead Xeno species survived. Most notably were continent-spanning networks of roads, massive dams, artificial waterways, and of course, just miles of ruined defenses. Big walls, fortresses, and redoubts of some long-forgotten conflict. Istvan V was a grim, ashy desert wasteland, long since its time being a planet where any could do more than just scratch out some meager level of survival. Sounds great. <laughs> I wonder, makes you wonder what kind of alien race was there that have all that already. Who wiped them out? So there was, there's actually, we talked about it when we covered the Istvan system at the end of our Great Crusade faction, or not Great Crusade, at the end of our Great Crusade series. But the Istvan system had been kind of guessed or the educated guess by the Magos biologists of the emperor of the Imperium was essentially that the Istvan system had been terraformed and that all five planets, because there's five habitable planets in the system and that doesn't make any sense. So they had all been terraformed to be habitable. And at the time that the the uh, the reason that they followed that is by the time that they started cataloging all of the critters and plants, even the ones on Istvan Five, they were really similar. So, like for instance, Istvan Five may have only had like fire iguanas, things that could live like next to lava flows, but there were also iguanas on the other four planets. So they're like, okay, well, obviously this doesn't make sense. So I think it's sort of implied that it was some faction of Eldari or some other like old one created race. So maybe even the Quark. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe Necrons before they were Necrons. Or yeah, maybe the Necron tier. It's not, it, it's definitely a race that could terraform and bring animals to multiple planets. And it, it could just be some unnamed alien species too. But it, it actually kind of makes me think of the um, the expanse. They find a alien like buildings and fortresses later on in the series, and they go into a lot of detail about how they look and about how there's just massive structures. And that's all I can think in my head is just like these massive, obviously fortresses and like defensive positions, but they're just alien. You'd like I don't I don't why would you build this? I guess it's going to defend, but like against what? Like who's going to bring a weapon that big? And then you're like, oh, my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Overcome with mind-numbing rage at his brother and his legion's betrayal, Ferris Manus and his sons gratefully received the emperor's orders to follow Rogel Dorn's plan. The forces of eight legions would descend on the traitors dug into Istvan V in two waves an action that would fall under the supreme command of Ferris Manus himself. Arriving in the system first, and therefore making up the first wave, would be the Iron Hands, Salamanders, and Raven Guard, with the second wave being made up of the forces that would arrive later, the Alpha Legion, Night Lords, Iron Warriors, and a force of word bearers under the command of Primarch Logar. A large contingent of Dorne's own Imperial Fists were also on their way to the system, At this time, the forces in the second wave, with the exception of Dorne's Imperial Fists, had all turned traitor, swearing allegiance to Horus, but they were under orders to keep this allegiance secret. 
So none of the loyalists knew that this second wave was made up entirely or almost entirely of traitors. With a masterful application of astropathic coordination and a seemingly favorable set of conditions for transition through the warp, the forces of the Imperium arrived closer to plan than they had normally expected. The Imperium always sort of expects or expected that there would be a little bit of delay. The warp's going to throw you off. Somebody's going to get, we're not all going to get there at once. For whatever reason, they all arrived there at once. Although some of the turbulence did sweep the Imperial Fists into a becalmed area of the warp, which greatly delayed them. So the Imperial Fists were not part of the second wave. The Salamanders... Was that because the Chaos Gods were like, we're going to tie this this legion up in the second wave, and then the first one we're going to... I wonder. (laughs) I wonder if... I wonder... (laughs) Especially you're, you're Charlie right now from uh, Always Sunny with the, the yarn map, Marky. <laughs> yeah. uh, Especially when you I read how was large. From, uh, was that Always Sunny or was that uh, Pacific Rim? It's it, Well, I mean, he plays the same character, but that the map of where is Pepe Silva is from Always Sunny. Oh, okay, okay. What were we going to say, Chuck? Sorry. Yeah, when you, when you read the books and you see how large the force was of the fists, it was a huge fucking force. So, yeah. It was I like half the, the fists. Half the fists stayed on Terra to prepare. Yeah, yeah it was fucking the insane. Soul system. Yeah. Actually, no, I take that back. Um, at this point, Dorn is not preparing Terra because at this point, the Imperium thinks that Horus is doing something different. We'll talk about it here in a second. Uh, the Salamanders and the Raven Guard, as planned, arrived with all of their attendant forces as a vanguard. In retrospect, as Mark, you just brought up, it seems that which legions arrived when and how fast may have had a bit more to do with the malign forces of the dark gods oh shit son (laughs) again at this point very few knew the whole truth of the betrayal and the heresy being started by horus maybe one or two members of nathaniel garo's crew malkador and the emperor and of course loken although at this point he was deep into his madness as cerberus so loken hadn't by the time of istavan five starting garo had not found loken that Istvan five happens day well probably months after Istvan three. It has not quite been a year. There was also this idea that Horus's forces were confined to just those four original legions, and maybe not even the entire legion. There could have been people within the legion that were just going along for the motion. If Horus and the other Primarchs could be swiftly brought to justice, the crisis could be averted, and their legions would fall back into line. Maybe even the Primarchs themselves could be saved and returned to the Emperor's light. Theories that this was some sort of misguided, megalomaniacal insanity on Horus's part, or even Xenos' influence and control by either the Crave or the Enslavers, were common across the forces of those Loyalists and Primarchs that had been sent to break the Warmaster's fleet at Istavan V. Even those who knew more, and knew that each of the traitor legions would need to be gutted and reconstructed at the very least, saw the threat as Horus angling to set up his own empire as a rival to the emperor. The depth of what was to come wasn't grasped at this point, even at the highest levels of the Imperium. Essentially, they are all of the mind that Horus is setting up a second empire. They don't, there's no concept of the Siege of Terra there's no concept of this bloody path that will be beaten to the home world. None of that has happened yet. Yeah, there's no, there's really no reason for anybody to think that yet. Yeah, exactly. 
galaxy's big enough i want my second i want my piece of the pie and there was also just this thought that like oh they can be saved it's not too late because with the exception of malkador and the emperor not really many knew the dangers of the dark gods even nathaniel garrow and his guys who had seen it didn't quite realize that there was like this chaos tint happening yet taint <laughs> just for marky taint thank you thank you you're welcome Long-range reconnaissance reports began to flood into the Loyalist fleet by astropathic transmissions, and what they reported was seen as both a concern and an opportunity. Long-range picks exposed massive efforts were being taken by the traders to build a command headquarters for Horus's mustering forces in the overbuilt ancient fortresses of Istvan V's Urgal Plateau. These images showed banners of both Horus and Fulgrim, along with power-armored warriors and super-heavy armor on the walls. While Mechanicum forces worked to build up even more fortifications, Horus's war fleet was surprisingly absent, although this could be explained by the need for the traders to scramble for resources and resupply, a move keeping with Horus's tactical history, since no major retaliation had ever been mustered this quickly in the past. Essentially, Horus moved in, blew up a bunch of stuff as war master, and then took his fleet to go resupply. He didn't hang out. He let the planet fix itself. So they arrive at Istvan 5 and see the planet fixing itself and the War Master's fleet isn't there. And they're like, yeah, this tracks, this makes sense. Or at least some of them go, this tracks, this makes sense. But still, where could this fleet be? And why was it truly absent? To Ferris Manus, the absence of the traitor fleet wasn't a concern. It was an opportunity, and it was an opportunity not to be wasted. To the Primarch of the Iron Hands, Horus had exposed himself too early with both the escape of the Eisenstein and the failed attempt by Fulgrim to corrupt him. The absence of the fleet was just another one of these errors, an error Ferris Manus would make the traitors pay for by crushing their rebellion in a single concentrated attack, and this was a feeling shared across many in the fleet. They had caught Horus unprepared, in the middle of setting up his defenses, the bait was laid out, and the loyalists had taken it, unknowing of the cataclysm which was to follow. Do I get to be Horus since you're Malkador? Mind being Horus. Well, then you better be Horus. Different is, uh, voice. Different voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a, uh, he's supposed to be like super pretty, right? No, that's Fulgrim. Horus that's is Fulgrim. very. Wasn't he also? Ru Russell Crowe from Gladiator. No. <laughs> Are you not entertained? <laughs> Vin Diesel. Vin yeah. Diesel from Gladiator. He's like he's like Fram, a big yoked out uh, Vin Diesel. All right, I got to get in a character for Fram. Right. I would say Vulcan is Vin is, more, is more Vin Diesel. <laughs> more Vin Diesel. Um, Horus. What, what a Horus voice. No, be. Vulcan would be more like the guy from the Green Mile. Just super like, nice. Uh, oh, that, that dude's awesome. The guy. The guy on Horus would be Duncan. Horace would be like a younger Peter Weller. Who's that? Uh, the dude in Enemy at the Gates. The bald guy from Enemy at the Gates. The Nazi sniper. I don't know if I've seen that. Uh, uh, Robocop. Uh, Peter Weller is Robocop. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, the original? Yes. I haven't heard his voice in so long. That would be more Horace, also, I think. Peter Weller like would be Horace. Right, he's the guy in the <laughs> Abyss too, right? He is also. Yeah, he's oh, in the Abyss. That guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right, Arnold? 
Arnold would it's be a, who would Arnold be? It's we Arnold. need to do this needs to happen. Ooh, there that, needs to yeah. be a witch pri- after we do the Primark episodes, <laughs> we have to do what actor is what Primark. Yeah, our, what actor sounds our like. picks our picks for the actors of of the of the Primarks. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Less British. No, I, I they're all British. Jason Statham. There's another horse. Jason Statham. Yeah. He's 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 bald and he's not he's not pretty. But he's he's I not. Assume, I assume yeah, he's, the chaos taints kind of changed. How about looks. Ryan Ryan not yet, Reynolds not trying not to be a smartass? There you go. Nah, that's that's too high pitched. Yeah, no, Horace would be much more. I like the Vin Diesel take. You know, I mean, you've seen video, you've seen the video releases of Abaddon, right? Like like the uh, animations yeah, that I don't are remember at- him talking though. Oh, I was gonna say Abaddon looks a lot like Horace. Abaddon oh, is one yeah. of the. But yeah. Okay, so he's if gifted. you're looking for a look, ugliness. <laughs> he's gifted. He's a very <laughs> Horace is a very severe looking person. I imagine he's one of those uh, one of those characters that women would be like, oh, he's a ruggedly oh. handsome. No, but you wouldn't you know, say he was pretty. I know a lot of people are probably going to say Magnus the Red, but uh, was it Emotate from the <laughs> we, Mummy? Oh, there Emotate? you go. Oh, oh yeah, 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 from the mummy, go. he would be good for Horace. This is going to yeah, be for, yeah, for Magnus. Yeah, that guy for Horace. For Horace, for Horace, yeah. yeah. And with his more raspy voice, like when he's <laughs> speaking, uh, think commanding. He, like um, Horace would be like, I mean, dude, think back to like all of the historical battles that you were made to memorize. Horace is that orator. It's it's two sentences. I'll make it work. <laughs> if you fuck it up, do do my you're out. voice. You're out. If you fuck it up, you're out. I, I don't know what you're out of. Maybe just out of coke, but you're out. <laughs> Fair family. <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ. Hello, hello everyone. All right, I gotta get my tombos. Hello everyone. Hello, hello everyone. All right, I think I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Uh, mandatory podcast fuck around time happens at the beginning it's of the so, episode not in the middle <laughs> mark this day well my friends the emperor's loyalists are heading to their doom Warmaster horus speaking to angron and fulgrim during the initial loyalist Assault on Istvan Five. I like that. I also really like how you say Ist- Istvan. I like that Istvan. It's it sounds so good. Ishtvan. I can't I can't do it, but it sounds so good. You're adding an A after the the T. Ishtvan. You're saying Istvan, but I I feel like it's Isht. Like it probably I'm adding is an H. Istvan. Well, I like I'm that. It I'm adding an so H. Pretty. I guess. So. Yeah. Isht Istvan Five. Horace had decided to make his stand on the surface. An honor or some other motivation meant that the Imperium would kill its wayward scion and former war master in person. There would not be an orbital bombardment or an exterminatus, as both sides had recently learned that not even such attacks could guarantee the death of an Astartes. The planet, seen as some seed of a new empire, would be broken by hand not by ancient planet-killing weaponry. Seven entire legions, their command ships, destroyers, cruisers, scouts, all ringed Ishtvan 5. Cheeks getting clapped here real soon. (laughs) It was one of the most impressive displays of a combined fleet's power ever seen in Imperial history. 
Shuttles and gunships moved between them like bees, while on the decks of each warship, warriors gathered readying to make a massive unified planet fall. However, four of these legions had already sworn loyalty to Horus in secret and were ready to turn on their true loyalist brothers when the time came. On board the Fidelis Lex, Logar's flagship, the Primarchs Conrad Kurz, Alpharius, Omegon, and Perturabo, alongside commanders from the Night Lords, Alpha Legion, and Iron Warriors, had gathered, Logar impressing upon his assembled sons, brother Primarchs, and cousin Astartes, of the importance of their cause, and the significant historical linchpin this day would hold in history. The word-bearers believed the Imperium had failed them, first through the lies of the atheistic imperial truth, but also by its own internal imperfections. Despite the Great Crusade's efforts, humanity wasn't perfectly united, and the Xenos pushed ever in at all the edges of the Empire. It was an empire founded on lies, and on Istvan V, the purge to kill it would begin. Logar spoke of a new kingdom of mankind rising from the ashes, one of justice, faith, and enlightenment, heralded and protected by avatars of the gods themselves. The time of subterfuge was over. No longer would these allies remain secret. It was time for them to stand with the sons of Horus, world eaters, emperors, children, and death guard under the banner of the Warmaster Horus himself, the rightful true emperor of mankind. As Logar's fiery speech ended, First Captain Sevatar of the Night Lord's Legion declared, Death to the false emperor! Being the first to utter those words that would echo through a million throats across the millennia of the Long War. Soon his cry was taken up by others in the crowd, and the Dex Philatus Lex roared, Death to the false emperor! Death to the false emperor! Death, death, death! So that's where it came from, huh? Yep. <laughs> and eventually, of course, it turns right to there. death to the yep. corpse emperor and all that. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, he wasn't a corpse emperor just yet. Just yet. But yeah, the, the war cry of the traitors even now stems back to this moment before the Istvan Five massacre. I feel like we need to get like a... The voice mod thing, so we can like have a space marine. Uh, I pitch you know, my, kind of... I pitch myself down. You don't listen to the episodes, sir. <laughs> you're, you're like I record them. Um, I pitch myself down. I actually pitch all of us down when we do voices, so our uh, we sound a little bit more. Like, we more sound like like ten percent more. Rah, rah, rah. Like going through the voice, the voice modulator thing. Yeah, I haven't quite. I have never quite turned any of us into like the. It's coming through a Vox speaker. Yeah, I just yeah. I just make it sound like we're enunciating at a much lower octave because you know we would be nine feet tall with big booming chests. <laughs> Speaking yes, of yes. being really tall with a big booming chest, as their salamanders player, I feel that this one is yours, Marky. Yeah, I can I can give it a try. This we'll try, is we'll try Duncan. Look! Look at you and all Channel your voice acting. Oh, right, it's so great. This it's is so, this is so the bad. one. This is the one where you bring out Vin Diesel from uh <laughs> family. Family. All right, let me let me give it a try. I can scarcely imagine the amount of NOS I'm gonna need for this quarter mile. Wait. <laughs> oh, I don't even know what he sounds like. I, we're literally watching all of the Fast Furious movies right now that they because they, they stop being Fast and the Furious. They become like Fast Five. Like what my my wife and I are watching all of them for some reason. 
And I can't even tell you what he sounds like in those. I think we got me and the wife had a little marathon. I think we got to like four. We're on on six. We watched all the ones on Netflix. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we're doing. So we're up to six. And and let me tell you, a series that I need a, a a lore podcast on. Like I'm pretty sure Too Fast, Too Furious takes place after Fast and the Furious Five. Because the dude that dies at the end of Too Fast, Too Furious, the, the Asian dude, the dude that's yeah. actually pretty cool, he's in all of those movies and he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to go back to Tokyo. Oh yeah, I'm going to go back to Tokyo. Oh yeah, I'm going to go back to Tokyo. And I'm like, are you ever yeah, actually going to go back happen? to Tokyo? <laughs> good old Tokyo Drift. That was a good one. I thought that was the second movie chronologically. I didn't know that it happened like eighth. Like no one told me the rules. <laughs> I don't know about chronologically, but I, I, I didn't know about chronologically. I didn't know chronologically either. Like I didn't know that ha- that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Tokyo Drift yeah. is after a couple. Yeah. Co- Tokyo Drift has to. Is Tokyo at least Drift after is number the three. Movie. That's all I care about. No, Tokyo Drift is number two. No. No, it is number three. Yeah, it was after. Yeah, yeah, after too was, fast, too furious. Time, real time was. I was there and saw it in the the oh the movie arcade. Look at us. This is why we're this is why we're not a Fast and Furious lore podcast. Podcast, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, we're on actual. We're on forty k lore here. All right, let me let me mentally prepare myself for this. That was your mental preparation. Us making fun of Vin Diesel for fifteen minutes. <laughs> it even I makes sense because Nas like. Nos like burns better and, and salamanders are known for flamethrower. Come on, man. It fits. <laughs> I'm sorry, Marky. I promise Chuck Let's will be the next person to interrupt you. <laughs> I could scarcely imagine what inspired Horace to this madness. In truth, the very fact of it frightens me. For it even the best of us can falter. What does that mean for the rest? Lord Manus will lead us in. Seven legions against his four. Horus will regret this rebellion. Vulcan, Primarch of the Salamander's Legion. Sounds that was good, just too. Like, sounds just like Horus. <laughs> I like it. Good too. I like it. That was good, too. It sounds like Your you voice, uh, took actor a drag. Extraordinaire. Not, not as gravelly as Horus. <laughs> sounds, sounds like you took a drag of something and held it in while you talked. Yeah. <laughs> Little bit I, had of that, I had that feeling of like the, the yeah the commander standing there with the with the stogie clamped in the side of his mouth <laughs> on the Urgal plateau. The forces of the war master awaited the world eaters, death guard, and emperor's children and sons of Horus deployed throughout the Urgal depression, overseen by the ranged support squads of the traitor army artillery, which was arranged along the fortress walls. Ahead of them all stood the Titan Dies Ira, its colossal guns primed and ready to deliver death. Hundreds of thousands of traitor Astartes waited, guns ready and contempt for the loyalists burning in their chests. Then the clouds burned red-orange and were torn asunder by a mighty bass roar as lance beams slashed into the edge of the Urgal. Mixed with the thunder of orbital bombardment, as the Loyalist forces in orbit unleashed fury and power enough to end worlds. It lasted for minutes, entire sections of the War Master's fortress walls becoming engulfed in firestorms. But the Emperor's children had created a near-perfect network of defenses, in which the forces of the War Master weathered the storm. From his vantage point on the walls of the Xenos-built fortress, 
Horace smiled and watched through the clearing smoke as the sky darkened with the shapes of thousands of drop pods and stormbirds. The Loyalists' invasion had begun. The first wave was under the command of Primarch Ferris Manus, who was backed by the Primarch's Vulcan leading his Salamander's Legion and the Primarch Korax leading his Raven Guard Legion. Vulcan took the left flank and Korax took the right flank, while Ferris Manus and the Iron Fist's first captain, Gabriel Santor, went right up the center, along with a full ten companies of Morlocks Terminators. The Loyalists had considered the odds to be equal, but Horace knew exactly where they had planned to drop, and his troops sprang on them. The battlefield of Istvan V quickly became a slaughterhouse, the twisted hatred of the traitors clashing with their once brothers-in-arms in bitter conflict. The titans of the machine god walked along the battlefield, blood and death left in their wake, while the hooded heretic adepts of the Dark Mechanicum unleashed perverse ancient technologies stolen from the Artarian technocracy to tear bloody rents and spread havoc throughout the Loyalists. Hundreds of traitors had been slaughtered in the opening moments of the assault, and thousands were now dying on each side of the conflict every minute. The promise of inevitable death hung along the Urgal Depression as rivers of blood ran down its slopes, carving thick, slick paths through the dark sand. Enough martial might to conquer an entire star system had been confined to a single battlefield less than 20 kilometers wide. No legion fared well in the slaughter, as Astartes now fought brothers they had once sworn to protect. The traitors were expertly dug in, making the loyalists' superior numbers mean quite a bit less. While the loyalists had landed directly on top of their targets, spreading death through those same defenses. The scale of the close quarters battle and sprawling melee made tactics useless, and the two armies simply tried to batter each other into a bloody pulp in a relentless conflict that threatened to kill them all. So originally, the loyalists or the first wave, they were going in to kill what they thought was like traitor, just a bunch of traitors, like people against the emperor or like were there were they did they know that there was traitor space marines that they were going up against or and they knew they knew <clears throat> ferris manis rogel dorn had had ordered ferris manis to attack horus and the legions that followed him so they knew that this was going to be a bit like a, a battle a but they battle. didn't know that yeah as many legions w- that were against them no that were, the tr- the trap hasn't been sprung yet. Yeah, they, they only knew of the traitor legions that were original on Istavan 3. That's all they knew of. Okay, okay, okay. So I, that that's kind of what I was wondering earlier, yeah. too, is like, how had word not been passed yet that of what happened on Istavan 3? It had. And, okay, so it had, and they knew, and they were going in to fight the traitor legions. Right. Yes. But there was a trap that Horace had in mind that they weren't aware of because yes. of, they didn't know who also backed him, essentially, right? Yeah. Okay. So at this point, the loyalists only think that the sons of Horace, the world Word eaters, the, and, uh, the emperor's children and the death guard are the bad guys. They don't know that the word bearers are bad guys yet. Oh, okay. The ultramarines have successfully been blocked at Kalf. And no word of the word bearers and the ultramarines fighting has reached anybody. Okay. The loyalists' drop site at the far side of the Urgol Depression had been secured, but it had cost the Iron Hands, Raven Guard, and Salamanders and a heavy blood toll. Where one side 
in the battle took ground, the other side would lose ground, and the battle lines would endlessly shift, but with nothing, however, being truly gained or lost. To give an idea of the scale, within the first two hours of the conflict, tens of thousands of space marines lay dead, a catastrophic number that had never been encountered before by the forces of mankind, and tens of thousands more still fought on even though they had been brutalized and even crippled with injury. It was so horrific that entire units of human auxiliaries, veterans of some of the worst horrors of the Great Crusade, fell to their knees paralyzed in fear, or their minds broke and they had to be shot down by their overseers. However, slowly and maybe inevitably, the traitor lines began to bow dangerously backwards in the center. As the slaughter continued to swirl along the fortress lines, at the rearmost point of the Loyalists' lines, the great red bulk of Legio Ataris, known as the Firebrands, Battle Manipal landed in support of the Iron Hands Legion. Across the battlefield, Legio Mortis responded, striding towards this new threat. Predator tanks, outriders, and jet bike squadrons from the Sons of Horus and World Eaters swarming around the colossal titan's feet. The Loyalist Legio Ataris was outnumbered and outgunned, but they were eager to slaughter the enemies of the Emperor and to settle a decades-old grudge held between the two Legios. Burning with the righteous fury, Legio Ataris sounded their war sirens and charged into battle, becoming the first Loyalist Titan Legion to enter the fray of the Horus Heresy. The battle was brief and brutal and saw the firebrands completely destroyed but it effectively neutralized Legio Mortis's secondary contingent. The now-mauled traitor legion forces in support of the Legio Mortis were then cut apart and systematically ripped down by the Iron Hands. So even though this entire Titan Legion died, they were able to block half of Legio Mortis's strength and all of the support troops, all of the Astartes' support troops were killed which was one of the like big, we're turning the battle, the loyalists are going to win moments. The battlefield churned into a ruin soaked in blood and torn by thick boots and heavy armored treads. Wherever the fighting was thickest, the loyalist Primarchs could be found. Korax, borne aloft by the black wings of his jetpack, Ferris Manus crushing traitors in his silvery hands or dragging those who attempted to withdraw back into the fight, and Vulcan, armored in his overlapping plates of artificer armor, pounding the thunderclap of his warhammer into armor that shattered like so much porcelain. The traitors were like a mirror image. Angron, wildly tearing his twin chain axes, threw any to his left and right, barely aware of who died before him, traitor or loyalist. Fulgrim laughed in the faces of those who fought him, never stopping in his graceful dance of death, and Mortarion harvested life with each reaping sweep of his great war scythe like some great god of ancient Terran myth. Lastly, there was Horus, who watched from his fortress, shielded by his own sons and his brother Primarchs, content to oversee the battle, waiting. Even in the back and forth on the field, and even through the slow victory that they seemed to be tearing from the traitors moment by moment, the loyalists wondered what delayed the second wave, and it was this that Horus was watching for. So this is when shit's really going to get real, right? Yep. This this is when the uh the the surprise happens. So I, I see for three, six or nine dollars you can join our Patreon and see these images that Ryan pulls up. Uh I see that Ferris Manis has silver hands. He does. Like he has actual neck, 
Yeah, they're made out of necrodermis too. They're made out of the same stuff that the necrons are made out of. Really? So why does he have silver hands? Because we'll cross we that lore later. Find out when we damn cover it. Ferris Manus in detail. God he, uh, damn it. I didn't know. Lo- that. Yeah, he lost his hands. When? Before. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> soon, Marky. Soon.tm. When is soon? <laughs> wow. Fast forward and you might find it. Yeah, that's right. Marky, just pause this episode, fast forward a couple, and then come back and finish. God damn it. Once again, the skies of Istvan 5 fell dark. The screams of gunships and drop pod landers splitting the air and drowning out even the grinding combat happening below. Tens of thousands of artificial metal comets eclipsed the sun. Fiery streaks of their breaking thrusters ripping through the haze of combat smoke which had clouded the battlefield. The roaring cheer of the loyalists shook the very air even as the drop pods and landers smashed to rest at the landing zone of the Loyalists on the northern edge of the Orgol Depression. Another four legions had made planetfall, their deeds legend and sung by those loyal to the Emperor. The Alpha Legion, word bearers, night lords, and the iron warriors, the second wave had arrived. The traitors, bloodied and battered, fell into a withdrawal without hesitation. And overwhelmed with rage, the headstrong Ferris Manus ignored the counsel of his brothers Korax and Vulcan and flung, his, and flung himself after the fleeing rebels. Seeking to drag Fulgrim into personal combat, his veteran droops, the majority of the 10th Legion's Terminators and Dreadnoughts, followed Ferris Manus. But the forces which had landed in support of the Loyalist had been secretly sworn to Horus this entire time, along with their Primarchs, Conrad Cruz, Perturabo, Logar, Aurelian, and the twins Alpharius and Omegon. They were a force even larger than that which had first landed to attack the fortress on the Orgol Plateau, and these secret traitors were fully armed and armored, unbloodied and fresh for combat. The Iron Warriors went along claiming and reinforcing the high ground, a move that seemed perfectly normal, plasteel bunkers and other fortifications being dropped out of carrier ships hung in low orbit. Gun emplacements rising above those works under the hands and guidance of the Iron Warriors. Servidors, destined to be slave to those same guns lumbering from the Iron Hand ships in their numb, lobotomized herds. The word bearers and night lords taking up positions at each flank. First Captain Sevator of the night lords and his first company elite, the Armator, took the defensive positions. The word bearers and night lords were to be the anvil while the Iron Warriors would be the hammer, ready to fall. All they had to do was wait for the enemy to stagger back, exhausted, clutching empty bolters and broken blades, looking for welcome respite. Korax and Vulcan's warriors had been battered in what seemed like an unending grind of attrition, their weapons spent and their ranks full of wounded. Dragging those who couldn't walk and their dead behind them, the true Primarchs and their legions withdrew from the field, more than willing to let their newly arrived and unbloodied brothers claim some of the glory in Horus's coming defeat. But soon, they will yell surprise. <laughs> I, I like the bum-bum-bums. It's good. It's good. I, love, I like it. I like it a lot. So this is when the traitors get wiped out, right? And then... Yep. They're at 30, and then the... the and then puppies the and unicorns... win. And puppies and unicorns and sunshine and candy. 
Yeah. And that's what rules the galaxy. As they withdrew, they voxed greetings, news, and tactical information, but most importantly, calls for medical aid and supplies. But the lines of the newly arrived Astartes warriors atop the ridge remained grimly silent, letting the Raven Guard and Salamanders approach within a hundred meters of their line. It was then that Horus revealed his final card and sprung his trap. A lone flare shot forth from deep within the black Xenos fortress that Horus had claimed. And then the fire of betrayal rained down from the thousands of traitor bolters, as the four legions which now held the drop site revealed their true colors. Hundreds died in the first few confusing minutes, followed by hundreds more as the endless volleys tore into the Raven Guard and Salamanders. Even as this new terrible carnage begun to tear bloody rivers through the loyalists, the retreating traitors at their back, the ones who had been withdrawing into Horus's fortress, turned and brought their weapons to bear once again. Hundreds of world eaters, sons of Horus, and Death Guard fell on the Iron Hands, and although the warriors of the Tenth Legion fought valiantly, they were hopelessly outnumbered. They had damned themselves by pushing what they had thought was the advantage and staying on the field. On the other side of this new battlefield, the front ranks of Raven Guard went down, with chest and head wounds, only to be ripped into once again even by even more bolter fire. While on the western flank of the drop site, Laz cannons opened up on the Loyalists from the Word Bearers, Land Raiders, and Predators. They kept firing and reloading, shredding anything that lay before them. Three figures stood atop a bronze and gray Land Raider, watching the distant drop site massacre. Corferon, Master of Faith, and Erebus, the first chaplain, stood side by side, Logar their Primarch towering over them. While the Astartes and Half-Marine watched the slaughter, Logar's eyes were fixed on the center of the battle, his eyes wide as he watched his brother Ferris and Fulgrim tear into one another. The flashes of their weapons, a captivating and silent dance, distance and wind stealing even the echoes of their melee. Only a Primarch could appreciate the liquid grace and blinding speed of such a contest. As Logar watched, a faint smile came to his face, as he recalled a time long before when Ferris had presented him with Aluminarum, a fine Chorismal crafted by Ferris himself. This caused a brief moment of hesitation in Logar, maybe even regret and remorse, before the words of Kerforon brought him back to the present. He had a Crozius crafted by Ferris Manus, huh? Yep. As a craziest yep. mall made by Ferris. Fancy. And it's it's it, fucking big too. It's one yep. of the largest croziuses. Oh. Yeah. And that's actually one, one of yeah. the no, I was gonna say it's a trip, Mark, you when you read the lore, how many of the traitor Primarchs have weapons that were created by the Loyalists? It's oh, how really? many how many of the Primarchs have weapons that were created by Ferris Manus? <laughs> Realistically, because he was the forge master. He was the yeah. guy that made like, if you were to look at them as Greek gods, Ferris Manus is the dude that makes all the weapons, basically. Huh. Um, yeah, that's one of the reasons that the word bearers can take the Cruzius. The cursed Cruzius is one of their like primary weapons. At all least right. they could in third and fourth. Um, I have not played word bearers post eighth. I should, though. I have a massive word bearers force. Snapping back to himself, Logar ordered the word bearers to attack at point blank range. The unaware forces of the salamanders and Raven guard have been savagely cut into their forces, tanks and dreadnoughts having already weathered the most hellish combat yet seen in the great crusade only to be caught in a blizzard of missiles and last cannon fire from the very allies they had trusted. 
Night Lord gunships raked the lines from the sky, dropping phosphex and cluster munitions, even as raptors screamed in to complete the assault. But then suddenly, the Alpha Legion appeared in the apothecarian stations near the rear of the Loyalist formations, ruthlessly cutting down any they came across, squads encircling and cutting into the salamanders with a surgeon's precision. Then from behind the Iron Warrior's bastion, the artillery of the Storn Bezeka roared into life, the whirlwinds and manticore siege guns laying waste to the stunned and reeling Imperial Army battalions and ravaging what portions of the first wave's landing zone still remained in their control. Cerberus and Typhoon tanks grinding down to tear apart the Imperial Army's own super-heavy tanks in a nasty close-quarter combat. The drop site massacre had truly begun. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming, everybody. That's a that's a bu- that's, that's a bull of mess to walk into. So yep. so they win, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, the Imperial Army wins the day. Okay, I'm just making sure. Like the the Ultramarines <laughs> not, probably not, show up, and no, no, not and, the Astartes. The 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 Guardsmen win. Oh, the Guardsmen the guard- that are being r- ravaged by close combat weapons that are not supposed to be close combat weapons. That sounds like Imperial propaganda. Just just saying. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> He's learning. <laughs> we can teach him. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, they they do win the loyalists. I mean, what? they get off the. We're planet. stopping here. How are you going to stop right here, Ryan? That, because I'm a mean, 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 it's mean, mean old getting man. Good. You dropped lo- like the little tidbit of like the action, and now we're stopping. Uh-huh. Yeah, he literally just dropped yeah, the so mic the, on the, you. The, the artillery. Of the Storm Bezeka are the, the those are the um those are the Imperial Army guys that follow the Iron Warriors. Yeah. The, okay, here's the thing. Imperial fists, iron hands, iron warriors. <laughs> like, seriously? <laughs> Come on, guys. These are all I realize they're not all the same, but they're all close. <laughs> Iron hands, iron warriors, yeah. Yeah, but the iron warriors have their own like artillery, like specialized artillery guardsmen that follow them. And these dudes just huh. fucking un as soon as as soon as the hammer falls entirely, these guys open up. Because the the loyalists, you know, the 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 first wave landing area is all of the Astartes troops, and then it's all of the Imperial military auxiliary. So up to this point. You know, because this is all happening. The entire massacre is only like three and a half, four hours. It's a very, very short battle. Three, three and a half so in the, hours into the original troops, this happens. Yeah, yeah. Two, two hours into it is when this happens, and within that, like first minute or two, those Imperial Army troops are just like, why are they shooting at each other? Like, there's no, like, even the Raven Guard and Salamanders are like, wait, why are we being shot? Like, there's no concept of what's happening yet it's so fresh and so new that everyone is kind of stunned except for the primarchs in the back that are fucking fighting each other and obviously like the apothecary uh, as soon as they stop they set up and they start trying to work on people so there's still stuff happening and and you know the salamanders and the raven guards start shooting back obviously and trying to take like defensive positions and hide and all that but as all of this is happening these imperial guard troops are basically like staring slack jawed because they don't know it's long range guys this is all the long range weapons are back here and they're like 
Are we supposed to turn against the guys that are literally 50 feet from us? Or are we supposed to keep shooting the walls? Like, what are we supposed to do? And in that instant, that's when the traitor guard opens up and just starts fucking obliterating the shit out of their position. Jesus. And then, of course, you know, you send in space marine tanks because why not? Like the iron warriors are just going to make sure that they wipe the entire field. But yeah, th- this is the with the moment that the drop site massacre has truly begun. We will wrap up episode four of the Horus Heresy. This is bullshit. <laughs> This is complete bullshit. Unacceptable. Want to get into contact with us about any of our episodes? It's a literal cliffhanger, Marky. Yeah. Yeah. They're fighting on a cliff and they're hanging there. On a cliff. (laughs) They are. They actually are. They're totally fighting on, like, really close to a cliff. Want to get into contact with us about any of our episodes or the show itself? Reach us through email at underthehiveofmadness at gmail.com. You can send your complaints there as well for Ryan (laughs) leading us on a cliffhanger. (laughs) Feel free to join our community and also rag on Ryan for leading (laughs) us on a cliffhanger. Uh, You can join us on Discord. You can... Be sure to just drop it in general chat or where, wherever you feel that Ryan is going to is going to see it. Uh, not only can you talk to us about that, where you can lodge your complaints, but you can also talk about lore, hobby, tactics, uh, 40k, and if you'd like to get involved in other topics like Age of Sigmar, Magic, uh, RPGs, video games, and pretty much just about everything, everything and anything. We got we got we dabble. We tend to dabble. We dabble. We do find tend us to dabble. on <laughs> find us on Facebook, Instagram. Or our website, underthehiveofmadness.com. Also, feel free to check out Battle Reports and other video content with our friends Improbable Wargaming on YouTube. You can search Improbable Wargaming, and they should be on a bunch of other platforms as well. Spelling and links should be in the show notes. Help the podcast grow by liking and reviewing us wherever you get your podcast fix. Our home is on Spotify, but we are also on Apple, Google, Audible, and many, many more. Support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash under the hive of madness. All Patreon members get access to a video podcast with minimal editing so you can see our beautiful faces and hear all of our amazing blunders. All Patreon levels also get access to our quarterly painting contests. Plus, we have other perks at higher levels, so go on over and check all of that out. Mama Kaz's Noodle House, home of the spiciest dishes in the hive, voted the best ramen house in the Carcosin sector, third year in a row by Intergalactic Trucker Magazine. Grab a bowl of Liz Gizzard ramen or try their new hive squirreled fried rice. Make it a meal and wash it down with an ice cold arrogant squig ale. Only five credits. We are your source for the freshest news on the pirate Vox waves, the true sound of rebellion, 665.66UHMR Camrat Radio. Reminding all of you Camrats, Hive Mice, and Sump Ghoulies to keep those dials fixed right here. Same ratty frequency for a dose of the same ratty ass attitude. Run, for they have your scent. Run, for they can hear your heart. Run, for they can taste your fear. No matter what you hear, don't stop, don't turn, or you will never see them strike. And, um, read a book. Literal cliff, it's a literal yeah. cliffhanger, yeah. Marky. <laughs> what the motherfuckers?